0: Welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast dedicated to all things hematology. And to keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology, you must tune to the Hemang Pulse. The Hemang Pulse is brought to you by Blood Cancers Today. And I am your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I appreciate you tuning in. You probably have heard me speak on my own podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered, don't forget to check out both of these podcasts. We've been doing several podcasts on ASH Updates, the American Society of Hematology meeting that took place in December 2022 in the beautiful city of New Orleans. And today I'm hosting Professor Graham Collins from the United Kingdom to talk about advances in Hodgkin Lymphoma. (laughs) I want to make sure we start by an introduction to uh, folks who are listening to this podcast, The He-Mind Pulse, so maybe a little bit about you and where you practice, and uh, I'm sorry to say about England in the World Cup. We were talking before we went on the air about England in the World Cup, but uh, hopefully there's always next uh, in four years. That's
1: always what we say ever since 66. Yeah, there's always in four years time. Uh, No, thanks, Chaddy. Delighted to be on the podcast who wouldn't want to stay up to date with hematology. So what a wonderful uh, initiative this is delighted to be part of it. Yeah, so I'm uh, uh, Professor Graham Collins. I'm a hematologist in Oxford. I'm the lymphoma and clinical lead here, and I have a particular interest in lymphoma. Um, I run a lot of clinical trials in high-grade lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma, and Hodgkin lymphoma really is my uh, burning passion. So uh, yeah, can talk about that all day if you want.
0: And that's what we're (laughs) going to talk about today. It's Hodgkin lymphoma. There's a a lot of things that I've seen uh, across the wires about uh, Hodgkin lymphoma at ASH, but uh, our goal is to highlight to listeners uh, a little bit more of the ones that are clinically relevant, really important, and maybe things that really your uh, got your interest. So let's start with number one.
1: Yeah, well, I think the first thing that, that piqued my interest was the HD21 trial. So this is the latest big trial that's come out of the German Hodgkin study group. And anyone will know in the lymphoma world that uh, the German Hodgkin study group really has, you know, been a powerhouse of... Uh, generating large randomized trials in Hodgkin lymphoma. Not everybody has necessarily sort of gone with the results of their trials, but they've certainly informed practice in many countries in the world. And this is a fascinating trial. So um, they've taken their backbone, which is the rather controversial escalated BCOp uh, treatment, which is a very intensive, uh, but very effective chemotherapy regime. And this was for stage three, four patients. And they compared it with a modified version of escalated BCOP that they call Brecad. And essentially what they've done is they've dropped the bleomycin, they've replaced it with brentuximab. They've fiddled with a few other things. So they've slightly reduced the atoposide. They've slightly increased the doxorubicin. They've left the big dose of cyclophosphamide there. They've swapped around the prednisolone because it's dripping in prednisolone-escalated B-cop. And they've swapped that for dexamethasone. And they've also switched the procarbazine to decarbazine, which has been lo- a long time in the offing, I have to say. So it is quite a different regime. And there was a co-primary endpoint. So they wanted to show this was less toxic. So that was one of their primary endpoints was treatment-related more morbidity. And they also wanted to show non-inferiority um, to escalated BCOP. And this is the first sort of set of data. So it's the morbidity data that they presented at ASH, not the efficacy data that still hasn't matured yet. And essentially, they showed that it is less toxic. So particularly in terms of hematological toxicity. So there were fewer red cell transfusions anyone who's used escalated b cop will know that you do often need to give red cell transfusions and platelet transfusions there were significantly fewer of those there were fewer unplanned hospital admissions than escalated b cop the grade 3 4 uh, non hematological toxicities were roughly the same though and when you look at they presented the overall pfs curve so not broken down by arm because they say it's not mature yet but it was extremely high i mean well over 90% at several years out so Um, You know, we wait to see if it's non-inferior, but it was certainly less toxic. My take on this is if you are an escalated BCOP user, which, as I say, is is variable the world over, um, if BRICAD becomes available based on that toxicity data, assuming non-inferiority, I think pretty much everyone would switch. What I'm not sure about is if you're an ABVD or AVD brentuximab user, will this persuade you to switch to BRECAD? I don't know, because there were still patients needing red cell transfusions and platelet transfusions. And, you know, so I think it probably is still a bit more toxic in terms of acute toxicities. But the other thing to say, Chaddy, which I think they're doing well uh, in this trial is they're collecting fertility data. And we saw some FSH results. Now, that's a poor surrogate, but it gives you some idea. And it certainly looks a lot less gonadotoxic, at least by, on biochemical grounds, compared to escalated BCOP. But they are collecting AMH data as well, which is really important, and also the um, pregnancy and live birth rate. So, you, you know, hopefully we'll see it being less toxic uh, in terms of reduced fertility as well. So I thought that was a really interesting one.
0: Yeah, that was my you, you, that was my question. Uh, whether was there enough long term follow up to discuss a fertility and b um, treatment related myeloid malignancies?
1: Yeah, and no, the bottom line is not really. You know, certainly the fertility will take longer to get some proper results, and myeloid malignancies. Yeah, we're going to have to wait another few years, certainly. Uh, but important topics to address. Yeah.
0: Okay, I like it. Those Germans, they, they, they're they not good in soccer, but they're not bad at hockey.
1: <laughs> they're incredible at delivering trials. I mean, they really are, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: What What's next do you have for us?
1: So I, I thought a particularly relevant uh, for the audience for this, I'm sure, was a longer-term follow-up of the RATTLE study. So this is still frontline advanced stage. You know, the RATTLE study, I think, has been very influential the world over for people who use ABVD. It is, the initial re- report uh, published several years ago now basically showed that if you give two cycles of ABVD, you'd do an interim PET. If the PET's negative, you can drop the bleomycin with no reduction of efficacy, and you see a significant benefit in terms of toxicity. So that's for the interim PET negative patients. And we saw the seven-year follow-up data And it essentially shows the same thing. So I think we can be thoroughly reassured that dropping bleomycin is the right thing to do in those patients who achieve an interim negative PET. If you're using ABVD, again, doesn't necessarily apply to A squared VD, AVD Brentuximab, but ABVD. Um, Overall, I mean, I still find you know I'm a I'm a Brit, and this was uh, basically a British study. I mean, it was international; there were other sites as well, but it was um, designed by colleagues of mine in Southampton. but overall, I still think it's a slightly disappointing study because when you look at the stage three, four, seven year PFS, it's 75%. So it's basically the same as pretty much every other study with ABVD over the last sort of 10 years. So whilst it's definitely beneficial for reducing toxicity in intra-impact negative patients, I'm not sure it's really shifted the bar in improving efficacy. And I think that's where your, well, depends, you know, say where you are in the world, that's where your escalated BCOP or your AVD Brentuximab come in for the efficacy Uh, aspect. The the other interesting result they presented, and I mean, we know this already, but I just thought it was very interesting, was they presented the results for the uh, 60 years and under and the over 60 year um, old patients. And it just confirmed what we know. I mean, seven year PFS, I think it was 80% in the under 60s, but 58% in the over 60s. So a drop of over 20% PFS, you know, they do. And these were patients who were fit for ABVD and potentially escalated BCOP. So there is such a decrement in terms of outcomes in older patients with Hodgkin.
0: So, you know, in, in your practice, Graham, like how how do you, so if you're doing ABVD, obviously, you you can do the PET, and if it's negative, you drop the B, and you move on with A V D. But how are you reconciling the ABVD versus AAVD? I mean, does this really, uh, basically, I mean, does the Rathal have, any significance whatsoever if you are somebody who's going to AVD plus brintuximab?
1: The bottom line is I don't think it does. I mean, we we would love to have done it. We actually proposed doing a trial of a response-adapted AVD brintuximab approach, but, you know, Echelon 1 was, uh, I think, ongoing at the time, so we never really stood a chance for it being funded. So, yeah, no, I don't think it does. I think if you go down an AVD brintuximab approach, you're basically committed to keeping that going for six cycles, even if you're interim PET. Negative, you know, we may get data. I've not seen any good data yet about people who stop Brentuximab early, but potentially, you know, let's say for peripheral neuropathy, be interesting to know that their outcomes are just as good as those who get all six cycles. So, yeah,
0: in your practice, are you an ABVD? Are you an AAVD? I mean, is there a way that you can make decisions one versus the other?
1: Yeah, well, w- working in in England as I do, I, I I can't use avd brentuximab. It's not funded, which is frustrating because I would. You know, and that's important because, you know, with the overall survival data now of Echelon 1, which I do believe, you know, is modest, but it's real, I think, compared to ABVD. I I would, if I could, use AVD-Brentuximab. You know, I would struggle to see a role for ABVD uh, if that were available. This is for advanced stage. You know, we we don't have so much data for early stage.
0: I guess I'm trying to understand, is there a scenario... Where ABVD should be used in 2023, um, I, I can I can understand maybe the neuropathy. Maybe there are certain folks who have significant neuropathy with diabetes and so on, where you really may be worried about the brinoxazin. But short of that, it's really tough with the echelon data, no.
1: It absolutely is. For advanced stage disease, I think you're limited to, as you say, very sort of niche groups of patients such as neuropathy. And, of course, neuropathy we know is very real. You've got two vinker alkaloids in AVD-Brentuximab, which, you know, does uh, the cumulative neuropathy burden is quite significant with AVD-Brentuximab. And also the other, the other group I would highlight is the over-60s, you know, that there was a separate publication recently from Andy Evans and colleagues uh, of the over-60s in Echelon 1. And, you know, the, the grade the, the grade two and three, both of which are quite significant, neuropathy, neuropathy rate was considerable. And about, and as is by memory now, it was about 60 or 70% of patients needed uh, dose reduction or omission of Brentuxmab due to neuropathy. So you've got to be very careful in older patients. I'm not saying don't use AVD-Brentuxmab, but you've just got to be very vigilant. Great.
0: What else have you got?
1: So, um, I mean, sticking with um, advanced stage, I, I mean, this is again a little bit, I'm aware this is a little bit more perhaps UK relevant than than globally, but I think it was a fascinating study anyway for all people of all nations. And this was compared, this was looking at the genomic health, so that's the phrase they used, of patients who were treated with procarbazine versus decarbazine in frontline. Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, this was in the context of escalated B-COP or escalated B-COP-DAC, but it was essentially procarbazine versus dacarbazine. And the reason they did this is in the UK for a a while ago, we switched from escalated B-COP to escalated B-COP-DAC based on pediatric data suggesting it might be better for for, 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 for gonadal health. But what the group in Cambridge did, which was fascinating, is they took fairly small numbers of patients, but they had a look at their hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, they did a mutation analysis in collaboration with the Sanger Institute, you know, really a world-renowned uh, molecular um, uh, group there. And they showed, well, first of all, they showed that with age, normally, I mean, they've shown this already, your mutational burden increases, we know that. And they showed quite convincingly, if you have ABVD or if you have escalated b dac so Dicarbazine, your mutational burden increases modestly, you know, really not that significantly. But if you had procarbazine escalated B cop escalated B cop, it was highly significantly increased your mutational burden, logs greater, um, suggesting that there is a very real sort of um, issue with introducing mutations uh, into your DNA. And actually, they found a pattern uh, which was already described in the Cosmic database, a sort of signature which was unknown what it was there for. They'd found it in Hodgkin cell lines, but they didn't know what caused this mutational signature. And now we have an answer. It's almost certainly procarbazine. And the other work they did, which again is uh, uh, to carry on this story, uh, is they uh, looked into a patient who had been treated, I think it was with Clavit, but it was definitely procarbazine containing chemo, who then subsequently, about nine years later, developed bowel cancer. And they found this mutational signature in the normal bowel epithelium as well as the, um, the the bowel cancer, they weren't sure. I have to say though, whether that was affecting driver mutations or just passenger mutations. But it, you know, it again raises the issue that procarbazine in particular is pretty damaging. Uh, and potentially potentially carcinogenic and the other work they're doing now there was no result presented but it's fascinating hypothesis is they've got a patient who had three children before having escalated b cop and then three children afterwards and they're actually going to the children and looking at their dna to to see if they can find this mutational signature asking the question does it actually affect the germline of patients being treated with Procarbazine, and you know that the implications of that if they find it is that you know our, our own cancer risk may depend on what our parents were exposed to when they had their cancer treatment which of course whole, adds a whole new dimension to your consultations when you think about options um, for chemotherapy
0: yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't have thought about this it's this really interesting what's next perhaps we can think briefly about relapse
1: disease so there wasn't that, i have to say there wasn't that much presented about relapse but of course it's all about Checkpoint inhibitors. I mean, there was some frontline, which I'll come back to maybe in a minute, but um, checkpoint inhibitors, you know, many of us use them at relapse. They're licensed currently for monotherapy, but many people have been combining with other agents. And we saw Alison Moskowitz um, present data, this is about a, a, a year or so ago now, on Pembro GVD. Well, what we saw at ASH this year was Matthew May presenting on NICE, so Nivolumab ICE, um, N I C E. Uh, I think many of us would you know, if you have the option to use this combination, would prefer that combination just because we're more familiar with ice than perhaps we are with GVD. That's certainly the case yeah. for me. I've used tons of ice. And they've already presented interesting data on lower risk relapses. And this data they were presenting at ASH, ASH this year was high risk relapses. So primary refractory cases relapse within a year, extra nodal relapse, B symptoms that relapse and anemia relapse. Those were the main criteria. And it was a phase two study, so it wasn't randomized, but patients received a dose of nivolumab monothe- monotherapy, and then moved on to nevoice two to three cycles, and then went on to an autograft. you know, if they were in a decent remission. It was relatively small numbers, about 35 patients, very high response rate. I think it was an, an 89% overall response. The vast majority got to autograft. I think it was 32 out of 35, and their one-year PFS was 90%. So you know, it's a one year PFS, it's a relatively short follow up. But of course, most relapses uh, happen within a year with that was quite clear from the Athera study, much larger study done several years ago now. So I think it's, you know, every study that we see now of checkpoint inhibitor combinations, certainly in the relapse setting, look very impressive. And you do just wonder you know whether this story of chemosensitization etc really does seem to be holding some water so again i'm restricted in what i can use here on our in our socialized healthcare system but it, you know if, if i was a patient and i had relapsed hodgkin i think i would be reaching for a checkpoint inhibitor combination
0: now just in solid tumors um, the use of uh, checkpoint inhibitors depends on the tps score cps score and all of that is that similar in Hodgkin lymphoma? Do you actually look at the we need to look at the staining of the um microenvironment cells of the research, Like what how or it doesn't matter. You just can use yeah. it for everybody.
1: So there's been quite a bit of work on that done. It's mainly been done at just PDL1 expression on Reed Sternberg cells. Um and there is a there is a correlation, but it's not that strong. So you know, there is certainly no advice that you should only use checkpoint inhibitors on. Uh, you know a high H index. That that advice isn't there. And again, if I had a low PDL one score, I, to be honest, I'd still want a checkpoint inhibitor. The results still are pretty good. But there is a rough correlation. I think an important thing to remember about checkpoint inhibitors in Hodgkin, which I personally find fascinating, is we d- just don't know how they work. You know, in in the solid tumours, there's good evidence, at least in some melanoma is a good example, that it's an MHC class one restricted, you know, CD eight um, cytotoxic response. But that is not the case in Hodgkin. You know, Reed-Sternberg cells do not express MHC uh, class one, most cases at least, and indeed, beta two microglobulin. So it's almost well, it's not. It's not a CD8 cytotoxic response, and we don't really know what it is. There's some data; it might be a CD4 cytotoxic response, which, to a fairly basic somebody with a fairly basic immunology understanding like myself, seems a bit odd. But uh, it, it it has been described. But there's all you know. It could there could also it could also be something just as simple as you know, when the T cells rosette around the Reed-Sternberg cells, that pd one pdl one interaction might just act as a survival signal. So all you have to do is interrupt that survival signal and the the Reed-Sternberg cell dies. You know, the jury's out still. So uh, that has implications because it means, you know, when we look for biomarkers for people who are going to respond, it would help to know how it's going to work, you know, what the mechanism of action is in order to, to develop that biomarker.
0: But that's that, that's that's a, I mean that's a strong progress because adding checkpoint inhibitor to ICE right now is almost standard of care. I mean I don't know. I presume it's standard of care if you are, have access to it. Yeah. yeah.
1: No. No. Exactly. I mean we, we we do get frustrated this side of the pond with our limited access. We still have you'll to get use it, it monotherapy.
0: I mean you'll get it soon. Right. I mean there's. I mean I presume it's hopefully in the works with the EMA. Well. That's it. The issue is, I mean, I
1: know you're quite interested, Chaddy, in sort of healthcare policy, but um, it's very difficult with phase two single arm studies. So uh, I don't think uh, Nevo Ice will get a license because it's only well, I don't don't think anyone's applying for a license because the trial is so small. Um, You know, in order for it to get a license, it needs to be a much bigger trial, preferably randomized. So the EMA and actually now since Brexit, we've even got our own licensing authority in the UK. It's the MHRA. Um, they really they really want to see randomized data. And there's precious few randomized studies in relapsed Hodgkin. Um, and then, of course, even if it were licensed um, in England, it has to go through NICE. I mean, that would be ironic. NICE going through NICE. <laughs> um, and uh, and they have to judge cost effectiveness. And, you know, that has to pass quite stringent thresholds in order for it to be judged cost effective. So sadly, I'm not holding my breath, actually, Um Uh, for for us to be able to use checkpoint combos. But it it is a sort of rallying cry, as well to to say, you know, I, I can completely understand why investigators, for example, in the US might do a single arm phase two, and that's probably good enough to maybe get it on the NCCN guidance and for them to use it. The rest of the world will not be impacted by that, sadly. So it's still, we still need randomized studies in these areas. Hard to do, you know, but we can do them. Um, I I think
0: think it goes to a larger question because there are folks who would be in the US who might actually have a dissenting view to uh, NICE and they may actually say, well, great data, but uh, so what? I mean, you still have to do a randomized controlled trial. But at the same time, you've treated many patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. I've done the same as well, where you really I, I think, I think the randomized control trial, we don't want to really go into healthcare policy, but I feel the randomized control trials are very appropriate when you genuinely can look a patient in the eye and say, I do not know if treatment A is better than treatment B. Mm-hmm. But if you have enough evidence as a specialist based on phase two data, based on mechanistic law data to really have at least a, a suggestion that arm A is better than arm B, then you just should not randomize. And sometimes yeah. that, that's where the nuance and the equipos. And I, I feel that the, the adherence strictly that everything has to be an RCT misses that point. Because an RCT is mandated when you cannot, when you can tell a patient that I don't know which one is better than the other, and and you need to randomize. But uh, I think uh, the Hodgkin lymphoma world recognizes that nice is better than ice.
1: (laughs) Yes, and and I think that I think that's right. I mean, and you're right. Equipoise is really important, but it it, it's yeah. I guess it's the difference, isn't it, between the scientist slash clinician and the commissioner, you know, who pays for it. And it's the sort of level, the bar of evidence that they accept. Uh, It can be a source of great frustration in... in, um,
0: That's a paper uh, me and you should write. We should write that paper. I have an idea. We should. Yeah. It's a good (laughs) viewpoint. What else do you
1: yeah, so in terms of sort of new agents, so we saw a uh, some data on a LAG3 inhibitor, so Um, I'm still learning how to say it, uh, in combination with pembrolizumab, uh, this within sort of multiply relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma. This again was a single arm phase two. Um, and there were actually a couple of cohorts to this trial, but the cohort they were presenting was the PD-1 refractory cohort. So these are patients that had already had a PD-1 inhibitor uh, before. And this was, um, a, a, again, a relatively small number. It was around 35 patients. And to be honest, it's, it's difficult to know quite what to make of the data. It, this is one of those things that you really want it to work. You know, one of the mechanisms of resistance to checkpoint inhibitors that makes a lot of sense, I mean, I don't think it's proven, but it makes a lot of sense, is that other checkpoints can uh, override, um, you know, the checkpoints, uh, the PD1 inhibition. And LAG3 is a very good. Candidate. There are others, uh, Tim three, etc. But Lag three is a very good candidate. But you know the data was an overall response rate of about thirty percent, so it was relatively modest. CR rate of ten percent, and I think the fifteen month PFS was around thirty three percent. So it was modest. Now the the presenter did make quite a lot of there being stable disease okay, but you know in Hodgkin and in most lymphomas, stable disease isn't so impressive. We really want to see proper reductions in tumor burden so i don't know i mean there was activity how much was the addition of the lag three i think is unclear but in credit to the company who, who produced this they are actually doing and i think it's brave they are actually doing a randomized study in multiply relapsed hodgkin lymphoma comparing that combination so pembro favazelumab with sort of investigator choice single agent chemo um so we'll see what that shows i mean that will give much more of a, def- a definitive answer of how useful that's
0: going to be very interesting any other new agents that uh, uh piqued your interest yeah th- to be honest there there wasn't many uh, new agents
1: presented at ash i mean there's a few that are sort of in active development so it was also before ash it was also the cologne meeting the um, ISHL, which uh, you know is is in my diary the highlight of the of the two year sort of conference cycle and um we you know we saw some interesting things there so um, the afm drug which is this by bi- this um tetravalent molecule that links cd56 onk so cells with cd30 uh we've seen data on this agent before which really wasn't that impressive it was in combined with pembrolizumab and to be honest it looked just as good as pembrolizumab monotherapy but what they're doing now uh is ex vivo that um they're taking um some they're taking nk cells and coupling this drug to these nk cells i think the nk cells are. T- derived from um, stem cells and then they're infusing that combination into patients uh, and seeing really quite impressive responses so i mean it's quite a laborious technique obviously but uh, a very interesting hypothesis and they're seeing really good response rates so you know that's an interesting one and of course you know car t cell you can't really not mention car t cell with any lymphoma there's slow progress, I think, is what I would say. You know, it's, it's clearly a much rarer indication, multiple relapsed Hodgkin than non-Hodgkin. So you're going to see slower progress, and I think my take-home message at the moment from the presentations I've seen of CD30 car, directed CAR Ts is that there's activity, but I'm just not sure of how robust and durable. The remissions are you know there's there's small numbers of patients but it's hard to see any plateaus forming on the curves so uh, you know there's going to be loads more development of course but i think with the data i've seen so far i'm not really clear what the role of car t is going to be yet
0: early stage disease anything uh, that is uh, of interest are we done with radiotherapy forever
1: well, there's a question. Um, so, <laughs> I, I mean, there you go.
0: We lost, we lost every radiation oncology. Uh, that's, that's right. It. So, well,
1: I, I mean, I guess the one thing I would flag in early stage disease is, um, despite a, a, a quite a well-known colleague of mine would say, I won't mention it, but uh, but he is very insistent to me that we should never fund early stage Hodgkin research ever again, because it's just not an area of unmet needs. That's his view, <laughs> which, of course, I heartily disagree with. Um but uh, yeah, so th- there is actually an ongoing, um, and in fact, there was a poster, I think, of a sort of ongoing trial on this. There's an ongoing large randomized study in uh, early stage. So it's actually stage 1, 2A, no bulk. So it's the same population as the RAPID study. That was the UK RAPID study that sort of established 3ABVD and no radiotherapy if you're PET negative as a reasonable approach. And what this is doing is it's taking that approach, very similar approach, three ABVDs and nothing else if you're PET negative versus, you know, an extra ABVD and radiotherapy if you're positive. And it's comparing that with AVD Brentuximab. So it's looking at um, an A-squared VD VD approach in early stage disease. And its primary endpoint, again, this is quite a brave study, is an improvement in PFS. So it's not non-inferiority, it's actually a, a superiority study. And of course, it's also looking to see if we can further reduce radiotherapy in a group that you're right. I mean, it, radiotherapy is used fairly sparingly already. So yeah, I, I still think there is room for development. Because I think, you know, every my take on radiotherapy at the moment is that every study apart from the German HD17, which uses escalated COP, and many people feel uncomfortable using that. So apart from that study, Every study that's omitted radiotherapy in early stage Hodgkin, even in PET negative, has resulted in an increase in relapses. Now, it's a small increase. So uh, many clinicians and patients are happy to accept that, but not every clinician and patient. So some radiotherapy is still happening. And of course, on an individualised level, I think that's appropriate. If you've got, you know, fairly small neck disease in a, uh, you know, stage one, then actually radiotherapy is very low risk pretty low toxic, you might get a bit of hypothyroidism later, and maybe has a 7% increase in PFS associated with it. So I don't think radiotherapy is dead. But I think it's definitely getting personalized in the appropriate way. And it's also allowing patients to make some decisions as to what they will accept in terms of risk of either having it or emitting it. But let's see what impact the new agents have as well.
0: Did you miss anything, Graham? I mean, I had one question at for you about the the prognostic model that uh, our colleague Andy published uh, in JCO of and course. presented mm. at uh, at ASH. Um, I thought it was intriguing uh, and interesting. Um, I don't know if you want to just maybe very very high level talk about it and and how, how would that really inform anything pertaining to your practice in 2023. No, you're right to mention that,
1: Charlie, and that was an omission on my part. So, yes, this was the output from the Holistic Consortium, which is a really laudable um, effort to bring together masses of data from clinical trials, from uh, registry data into one place. Uh, it's funded well, so they've got data sort of managers who are making sure all the sort of, you know, the the, the data points correspond to each other so that it's meaningful. So the data is very carefully sort of cleaned And they inputted over 4,000 patients in this particular analysis to come up with a a new advanced stage prognostic score. So it's basically there to beat the IPSS, which, of course, we've had for years and we've known for years isn't actually that helpful anymore. So it was over 4,000 patients in the sort of training set. And they also collaborate with the German group and another group as well uh, to validate. And it was over 1,400 patients, actually, that we used to validate and so they've come up with this new prognostic score with the brilliant name of A HIPPY. So it's the Advanced Stage Hodgkin International Prognostic Index, the HIPPY score, fantastic. And they've got an online calculator on our website that you can go into. You can input your patient's data and it will spit out the five-year PFS and overall survival. However, what you've got to remember, of course, though, is um, these patients were basically treated with ABVD. Um, if you're escalated bcop treaters, there wasn't much in there. And also AVD Brentuximab, the Echelon 1 data, of course, isn't there. It's quite hard to get pharma data uh, into these sort of investigator groups, unfortunately. But of course, I guess the pharma companies paid a lot of money for their data. So yeah, so we've got to be aware of of, of the, the treatment regimens. But one of the really interesting outputs from that presentation was simply about age so most of us would say, you know, what's about, you know, as you get older, what happens to your prognosis? Well, we all know in Hodgkin lymphoma it gets worse. What I think is less clear, it is it is also worse if you're in the TY, if you're in the AYA group, so very young. And what they demonstrated very well is that the best age, if I can put it like that, to get Hodgkin is 30. So your outcome is best if you're 30. Uh, if you're 18, your outcome is similar to if you were 45. So it's like a sort of J-shaped curve. And they actually saw that in each of the individual trials as well. But because the numbers were so small, it, it wasn't really statistically significant. But when you pool all this data together, it's quite a clear J-shaped curve. Why that is, I, I, I think the jury is out. I really don't know. But it's it's quite striking.
0: Yeah, I I, I thought it was a, a huge effort, um, you know, the practical application of this in an era where everybody in the us a lot of folks have shifted to aavd yeah uh, so it will be will be interesting to see whether folks will try to take that same model and validate it in a different cohort that's receiving aavd i think it's a reasonable effort to do well yeah. uh, it's been a pleasure having you uh, i think we covered everything did we i think uh, we probably are good unless there's something else that i missed and uh, you would like to highlight
1: no, I think. Well, I, I guess the only final thing I was going to mention was just the checkpoint inhibitors up front. Um, oh yeah, and it was just, it was just to sort of reinforce the data. There was not there was no hugely new data, but we did see the longer follow up of the NEVAL study, which was again from the Germans, uh, looking at early unfavorable disease with nivolumab either just before chemo or concurrently with chemo and again it's relatively small numbers of patients but it was about i think it was around 100 so it's it's not tiny numbers and they've only had one relapse and this is on quite significantly longer follow-up and again it just you know for me as a sort of you know somebody who's really interested academically in hodgkin i personally think the way forward with hodgkin is to use checkpoint inhibitors up front but the crucial difference is at the moment, they're just being added to basically the same amount of chemo, six cycles of AVD or whatever. And that's still exposing patients to 300 milligrams per meter squared of DOCS. That has a cardiac implications. What we need to be doing, I think, is using checkpoint inhibitors in a much cleverer way, uh, preferably in a response adapted way to start reducing the burden of chemotherapy. So we've already done a lot to reduce the burden of radiotherapy. We need to start reducing the burden of chemo for, again, the sort of long-term benefits of patients in terms of late effects. So that's where I really see the field, at least in upfront, uh, the the frontline field going. That's what I'd really love to see.
0: Couldn't agree with you more. I think a lot of effort should be done is how can we really minimize treatment that we are giving while maintaining the same results? Um, Survivorship issues are all real in patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. Dr. Graham Collins, thank you for your inaugural, uh, you know, uh, he pulse uh, saying, I need to have you again after EHA. So it be a
1: pleasure. You're, really on enjoyed ra- it.
0: you're on record right now that you're committed <laughs> to sometime in late <laughs> June or something of 2023.
1: Lovely. I'll see you then.